Part 2, Chapter 4 of The White Peacock by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 2, Chapter 4 Kiss When She's Ripe for Tears. It was the Sunday after Leslie's visit. We'd had a wretched week with everybody mute and unhappy. Though spring had come, none of us saw it. Afterwards, it occurred to me that I had seen all the ranks of poplars suddenly bursten into a dark crimson glow, with a flutter of blood red where the sun came through the leaves, that I had found high cradles where the swans' eggs lay by the waterside, that I had seen the daffodils leaning from the moss-grown wooden walls of the boathouse, and all, moss, daffodils, water, scattered with the pink scarves from the elm buds, that I had broken the half-spread fans of the sycamore, and had watched the white clouds of slow blossom go silver-grey against the evening sky. But I had not perceived it, and I had not any vivid spring pictures left from the neglected week. It was Sunday evening, just after tea, when Letty suddenly said to me, Come with me down to Streddy Mill. I was astonished, but I obeyed unquestioningly. On the threshold we heard a chattering of girls, and immediately Alice's voice greeted us. Hello, Sybil, love. Hello, Letty. Come on, here's a gathering of the goddesses. Come on, you just make us right. You're Juno, and here's Meg. She's Venus, and I'm here, somebody. Who am I? Tell us quick. Did you say Minerva, Sybil, dear? Well, you ought, then. Now, Paris, hurry up. He's putting his Sunday clothes on to take us a walk. Laws, what a time it takes him. Get your blushes ready, Meg. Now, Letty, look haughty, and I'll look wise. I wonder if he wants me to go and tie his tie. Oh, glory, where on earth did you get that antimacassar? In Nottingham, don't you like it? said George, referring to his tie. Hello, Letty, have you come? Yes, it's a gathering of the goddesses. Have you that apple? If so, hand it over, said Alice. What apple? Oh, lum, his education. Paris's apple. Can't you see we've come to be chosen? Oh, well, I haven't got any apple. I've eaten mine. Isn't he flat? He's like boiling magnesia that's done boiling for a week. Are you going to take us all to church, then? If you like. Come on, then. Where's the abode of love? Look at Letty looking shocked. Awfully sorry, old girl. Thought love agreed with you. Did you say love? inquired George. Yes, I did, didn't I, Meg? And you say love as well, don't you? I don't know what it is, laughed Meg who was very red and rather bewildered. Amor est titillatio. Love is a tickling. There, that's it, isn't it, Sybil? How should I know? Of course not, old fellow. Leave it to the girls. See how knowing Letty looks. And, laws, Letty, you are solemn. It's love, suggested George over his new necktie. I'll bet it is de gustasse sat est. Ain't it, Letty? One licks enough, and damned be he that first cries hold enough. Which one do you like? But are you going to take us to the church, Georgie, darling? One by one, or all at once? What do you want me to do, Meg? he asked. Oh, I don't mind. And do you mind, Letty? I'm not going to church. Let's go walk somewhere, and let us start now, said Emily somewhat testily. She did not like this nonsense. There you are, Sib. You've got your orders. Don't leave me behind, wailed Alice. Emily frowned and bit her finger. Come on, Georgie, you look like the finger of a pair of scales between two weights. Which will draw? 
A heavier, he replied, smiling, and looking neither at Meg or Letty. Then it's Meg, cried Alice. Oh, I wish I was fleshy. I've no chance with Sib against Pem. Emily flashed looks of rage. Meg blushed and felt ashamed. Letty began to recover from her first outraged indignation and smiled. Thus we went a walk, in two trios. Unfortunately, as the evening was so fine, the roads were full of strollers. Groups of three or four men dressed in pale trousers and shiny black cloth coats, following their suspicious little dogs. Gangs of youths slouching along, occupied with nothing, often silent, talking now and then in raucous tones on some subject of brief interest. Then the gallant husbands, in their tail coats, very husbandly, pushing a jingling perambulator, admonished by a much-dressed spouse round whom the small members of the family gyrated. Occasionally, two lovers walking with a space between them, disowning each other. Occasionally, a smartly-dressed mother with two little girls in white silk frocks and much expanse of yellow hair, stepping mincingly, and nearby a father awkwardly controlling his Sunday suit. To endure all this it was necessary to chatter unconcernedly. George had to keep up the conversation behind, and he seemed to do it with ease, discoursing on the lambs, discussing the breed, when Meg exclaimed, Oh, aren't they black? They might have crept down the chimney. I never saw any like them before. He described how he had reared two on the bottle, exciting Meg's keen admiration by his mothering of the lambs. Then he went on to the peewits, harping on the same string, how they would cry and pretend to be wounded. Just fancy, though, and how he had moved the eggs of one pair while he was ploughing, and the mother had followed them, and had even sat watching as he drew near again with the plough, watching him come and go. Well, she knew you, but they do know those who are kind to them. Yes, he agreed. Her little bright eyes seem to speak as you go by. Oh, I do think they're nice little things, don't you, Letty? cried Egg in access of tenderness. Letty did, with brevity. We walked over the hills and down into Greymead. Meg thought she ought to go home to her grandmother, and George bade her go, saying he would call and see her in an hour or so. The dear girl was disappointed, but she went unmurmuring. We left Alice with a friend and hurried home through Selsby to escape the after-church parade. As you walk home past Selsby, the pit stands up against the west, with beautiful tapering chimneys marked in black against the swim of sunset, and the headstocks etched with tall significance on the brightness. Then the houses are squat in rows of shadow at the foot of these high monuments. "'You know, Cyril,' said Emily, "'I have meant to go and see Mrs. Annabel, the keeper's wife. She's moved into Bonsart's Row, and the children come to school. Oh, it's awful. They've never been to school, and they are unspeakable.' "'What's she gone there for?' I asked. "'I suppose the squire wanted the kennels, and she chose it herself, "'but the way they live it's fearful to think of.' "'And why haven't you been?' "'I don't know. I've meant to, but—' Emily stumbled. "'You didn't want, and you daren't?' "'Perhaps not. Would you?' "'Ha! Huh, let's go now. There, you hang back.' "'No, I don't,' she replied sharply. "'Come on, then, we'll go through the Twitchell. Let me tell Letty.' Letty at once declared, No, with some asperity. All right, said George, I'll take you home. But this suited Letty still less. I don't know what you want to go for, Cyril, she said, and Sunday night and everybody everywhere. 
I want to go home. Where do you go, then? Emily will come with you. Ha! cried the latter. You think I won't go to see her? I shrugged my shoulders, and George pulled his moustache. Well, I don't care, declared Letty, and we marched down the Twitchell, Indian file. We came near to the ugly rows of houses that back up against the pit hill. Everywhere is black and sooty. The houses are back to back, having only one entrance, which is from a square garden where black speckled weeds grow sulkily, and which looks on to a row of evil little ash-pit huts. The road everywhere is trodden over with a crust of soot and coal-dust and cinders. Between the rows, however, was a crowd of women and children, bare heads, bare arms, white aprons and black Sunday frocks bristling with gimp. One or two men squatted on their heels with their backs against a wall, laughing. The women were waving their arms and screaming up at the roof of the end house. Emily and Letty drew back. Look there, it's that little beggar Sam, said George. There, sure enough, perched on the ridge of the roof against the M chimney, was the young imp, coatless, his shirt sleeves torn away from the cuffs. I knew his bright reddish young head in a moment. He got up his bare toes clinging to the tiles, and spread out his fingers fanwise from his nose, shouting something, which immediately caused the crowd to toss with indignation and the women to shriek again. Sam sat down suddenly, having almost lost his balance. The village constable hurried up, his thin neck stretching out of his tunic, and demanded the cause of the hubbub. Immediately a woman with bright brown squinting eyes and a birthmark on her cheek rushed forward and seized the policeman by the sleeve. "'Take him up! Take him up! And birch him till his bloody bucks roar!' she screamed. The thing policeman shook her off and wanted to know what was the matter. "'I'll smush him like a rotten data cried the woman, "'if I can lay hands on him. "'He's not fit to live nowhere where there's decent folks, "'the thieving, brazen little devil!' As she went on. "'But what's up?' interrupted the thin constable. "'What's up with him?' "'Up! It's him as it's up, and let him wait till I get him done, "'as crafty little!' Sam, seeing her look at him, distorted his honest features and overheated her wrath till Letty and Emily trembled with dismay. The mother's head appeared at the bedroom window. She slid the sash back and craned out, vainly trying to look over the gutter below the slates. She was even more dishevelled than usual, and the tears had dried on her pale face. She stretched further out, clinging to the window frame and to the gutter overhead, till I was afraid she would come down with a crash. The men, squatting on their heels against the wall of the ash pit, laughed, saying, Nub him, Paul. Can't I see him? Clork him. And then the pitiful voice of the woman was heard crying, Come thy ways down, me ducky, come on. Only come to my mother. I shall not touch thee. Do thy mother's bidden now. Sam, Sam, Sam. Her voice rose higher and higher. Sammy, Sammy, go to thy mammy, jeered the wits below. Shall not to come, shall not to come to thy mother, me ducky. Come on, come thy way, Dawn. Sam looked at the crowd and at the eaves from under which rose his mother's voice. He was going to cry. A big gaunt woman with the family steel comb stuck in her back hair shouted, Thou mun well bend thy face, thy knees to scrape. And aided by the woman with the birthmark and the squint, she reviled him. The little scoundrel, in a burst of defiance, picked a piece of mortar from between the slates and in a second it flew into fragments against the family steel comb. The wearer thereof declared her head was laid open, and there was general confusion. The policeman, 
I don't know how thin he must have been when he was taken out of his uniform, lost his head, and he too began branching his fists, spitting from under his sweep's brush moustache as he commanded in tones of authority. Now then, no more on it. Let's have thee down here, and no more messing about. The boy tried to creep over the ridge of the roof and escape down the other side. Immediately the brats rushed round, yelling, to the other side of the row, and pieces of red burnt gravel began to fly over the roof. Sam crouched against the chimney. Got him! yelled one little devil. Got him! Aye, go again! A shower of stones came down, scattering the women and the policemen. The mother rushed from the house and made a wild onslaught on the throws. She caught one and flung him down. Immediately the rest turned and aimed their missiles at her. Then George and the policeman and I dashed after the young wretches, and the women ran to see what happened to their offspring. We caught two lads of fourteen or so and made the policeman haul them after us. The rest fled. When we returned to the field of battle, Sam had gone too. If he hasn't slived off, cried the woman with a squint, but I'll see him locked up for this. At this moment, a band of missioners from one of the chapels or churches arrived at the end of the row, and the little harmonium began to bray, and the place vibrated with the sound of a woman's powerful voice, propped round by several others singing, And even ere the sun was set, everybody hurried towards the new noise, save the policeman with his captives, the woman with the squint, and the woman with the family comb. I told the limb of the law he'd better get rid of the two boys and find out what mischief the others were after. Then I inquired of the woman with the squint what was the matter. Thirty-seven young uns, and we had from that door, and there's no knowing how many more, if they hadn't a gone and eaten her, she replied, lapsing, now her fury was spent into sullen resentment. And never a word should we ha' known, added the family comb brower, but for that blessed cat of owners scrat it up. Indeed, said I, the rabbit? No, there were not left but the skin. They'd seen to that, a thieving, dirt-eating lot. When was that, said I? This mortal night, and there was the head and the back of the dirty stew-pot. I can show you this instant. I've got him in our pantry for a brew, haven't I, Martha? That lot of good it is, but I'll rip the neck out of him if I lay hands on him. At last, I made out that Samuel had stolen a large lop-eared doe out of a bunch of the coal-house of the squint-eyed lady, had skinned it, buried the skin, and offered his booty to his mother as a wild rabbit trapped. The doe had been the chief item of the animal's Sunday dinner, albeit a portion was unluckily saved till Monday, providing undeniable proof of the theft. The owner of the rabbit had supposed the creature to have escaped. This peaceful supposition had been destroyed by the comb-bearers seeing her cat, scratching in the animal's garden, unearthed the white and brown doe-skin, after which the trouble had begun. The squint-eyed woman was not so hard to manage. I talked to her as if she were some male friend of mine, only appealing to her womanliness with all the soft sadness I could press into the tones of my voice. In the end she was mollified, and even tender and motherly in her feelings towards the unfortunate family. I left on her dresser the half-crown I shrank from offering her, and, having reduced the comb-wearer also, I marched off, carrying the stew-pots and the fragments of the ill-fated dough to the cottage of the widow, where George and the girls awaited me. The house was in a woeful state. In the rocking-chair beside the high guard that surrounded the hearth sat the mother, rocking, looking sadly shaken now her excitement was over. Letty was nursing the little baby, and Emily the next child. 
George was smoking his pipe and trying to look natural. The little kitchen was crowded. There was no room. There was not even a place on the table for the stew jar. So I gathered together cups and mugs containing tea sops and set down the vessel of ignominy on the much-slopped tea cloth. The four little children were striped and patched with tears. At my entrance, one under the table recommenced to weep, so I gave him my pencil, which pushed in and out, but which pushes in and out no more. The sight of the stewpot affected the mother afresh. She wept again, crying, And I never thought as though it were all but a snared one, as if I should set him on to thieve that old door. If it wasn't all, and him a thief, and me called all the names they could lay their tongues to, and then in my bit of a pantry taking the very pots out. That stewpot has I brought all the way from Nottingham, and I've had it afore our Minnie were born. The baby, the little baby, then began to cry. The mother got up suddenly and took it. Oh, come then, come then, my pet. Why, why cause the shanna? No, the shanna. Yes, he's his mother's least little lad, he is a little un. Hush then, there, there. What's the matter, my little? She hushed the baby and herself. At length she asked, Has the policeman gone as well? Yes, it's all right, I said. She sighed deeply, and her look of weariness was painful to see. How old is your eldest? I asked. Funny, she's fourteen. She's out service at Webster's. Then Jim, as is thirteen next month. Let's see. Yes, it is next month. He's gone to Flint's, farming. I can't do much, and I shan't let him go into the pit if I can help it. My husband always used to say they should never go in the pit. They can't do much for you. They do what they can, but it's a hard job it is to keep them all going. The washing and the parish pay and five shilling from the squad, it's hard. It was different when my husband was alive. It ought to have been me as should have died. I don't seem as if I can manage them. They get beyond me. I wish I was dead this minute and him here. I can't understand it. Him as was so capable to be took, and me left. He were a man in a thousand, he were. Full of management like a gentleman. I wish it was me as I'd been took. And he's restless, because he knows I find it hard. I stood at the door till last night, when they were all asleep, looking out over the pit pond, and I saw a light, and I knowed it was him, because it were our wedding day yesterday, by the day and the date. And I said to him, Frank, is it thee, Frank? I'm all right. I'm getting on all right. And then he went. Seemed to go o'er the whimsy and back towards the wood. I know it were him, and he couldn't arrest, thinking I couldn't manage. After a while we left, promising to go again, and to see after the safety of Sam. It was quite dark, and the lamps were lighted in the houses. We could hear the throb of the farmhouse engines and the soft whir of the fan. Isn't it cruel? said Emily, plaintively. Wasn't the man a wretch to marry the woman like that? I did let him with decision. Speak of Lady Christabel, said I. And then there was silence. I suppose he did not know what he was doing any more than the rest of us. I thought you were going to your aunt's, to the Ram Inn, said Letty to George when they came to the crossroads. Not now, it's too late, he answered quietly. You will come round our way, won't you? Yes, she said. We were eating bread and milk at the farm, and the father was talking with vague sadness and reminiscence, lingering over the thoughts of their departure from the old house. He was a pure romanticist, forever seeking the colour of the past and the present's monotony. 
He seemed settling down to an easy, contented middle age, when the unrest on the farm and development of his children quickened him with fresh activity. He read books on the land question and modern novels. In the end, he became an advanced radical, almost a socialist. Occasionally his letters appeared in the newspapers. He had taken a new hold on life. Over supper he became enthusiastic about Canada, and to watch him, his ruddy face lighted up, his burly form straight and nerved with excitement, was to admire him. To hear him, his words of thoughtful common sense, all warm with the young man's hopes, was to love him. At forty-six he was more spontaneous and enthusiastic than George, and far more happy and hopeful. Emily would not agree to go away with them. What should she do in Canada, she said, and she did not want the little ones to be drudges on a farm, in the end to be nothing but cattle. Nay, said her father gently, Molly shall learn the daring, and David will just be right to take to the place when I give up. It'll perhaps be a bit rough and hard at first, but when we've got over it we shall think it was one of the best times, like you do. And you, George? asked Etty. I'm not going. What should I go for? There's nothing at the end of it, only a long life. It's like a day here in June, a long work day, pleasant enough, and when it's done you sleep well. But it's work and sleep and comfort, half a life. It's not enough. What's the odds? I might as well be flower, the mare. His father looked at him gravely and thoughtfully. Now it seems to me so different, he said sadly. It seems to me you can live your own life and be independent and think as you like without being choked with harassments. I feel as if I could keep on like that. I'm going to get more out of my life, I hope, laughed George. No. Do you know? And here he's turned straight to Letty. Do you know, I'm going to get pretty rich so that I can do what I want for a bit. I want to see what it's like to taste all sides, to taste the towns. I want to know what I've got in me. I'll get rich, or at least I'll have a good try. And pray, how will you manage it? asked Emily. I'll begin by marrying, and then you'll see. Emily laughed with scorn. Let us see you begin. Ah, you're not wise, said the father sadly. Then, laughing, he said to Letty in coaxing, confidential tones, But he'll come out there to me in a year or two. You see if he doesn't. I wish I could come now, said I. If you would, said George, I'd go with you. But not by myself to become a fat, stupid fool like my own cattle. While he was speaking, Jip burst into a rage of barking. The father got up to see what it was, and George followed. Trip, the great bull-terrier, rushed out of the house, shaking the buildings with his roars. We saw the white dog flash down the yard. We heard a rattle from the hen-house ladder, and in a moment a scream from the orchard side. We rushed forward, and there on the sharp bankside lay a little figure, face down, and Tripp standing over it, looking rather puzzled. I picked up the child. It was Sam. He struggled as soon as he felt my hands, but I bore him off into the house. He wriggled like a wild hare and kicked, but at last he was still. I set him on the hearth-rug to examine him. He was a quaint little figure, dressed in a man's trousers that had been botched small for him, and a coat hanging in rags. Did he get hold of you? asked the father. Where was it he got hold of you? 
The child stood unanswering, his little pale lips pinched together, his eyes staring out at nothing. Emily went on her knees before him and put her face close to his, saying, with a voice that made one shrink from its unbridled emotion of caress, Did he hurt you, eh? Tell us where he hurt you. She would have put her arms round him, but he shrank away. Look here, said Letty. It's here, and it's bleeding. Go and get some water, Emily, and some rags. Come on, Sam, let me look, and I'll put some rags round it. Come along. He took the child and stripped him of his grotesque garments. Tripp had given him a sharp grab on the thigh before he had realised that he was dealing with a little boy. It was not much, however, and Letty soon had it bathed and anointed with elderflower ointment. On the boy's body were several scars and bruises. Evidently, he had rough times. Letty tended to him and dressed him again. He endured these attentions like a trapped wild rabbit, never looking at us, never opening his lips, only shrinking slightly. When Letty had put on him his little torn shirt and had gathered the great breeches about him, Emily went to him to coax him and make him at home. She kissed him and talked to him with her full vibration of emotional caress. It seemed almost to suffocate him. Then she tried to feed him with bread and milk from a spoon, but he would not open his mouth, and he turned his head away. Leave him alone. Take no notice of him, said Letty, lifting him into the chimney seat with a basin of bread and milk beside him. Emily fetched the two kittens out of their basket and put them too beside him. I wonder how many eggs he's got, said the father, laughing softly. Hush, said Letty. When do you think you will go to Canada, Mr. Saxon? Next spring. It's no good going before. And then you'll marry? asked Letty of George. Oh, before then, oh, before then, he said. Why? How is it you are suddenly in such a hurry? When will it be? When are you, Mary? he asked in reply. I don't know, she said, coming to a full stop. Then I don't know, he said, taking a large wedge of cheese and biting a piece from it. It was fixed for June, she said, recovering herself at his suggestion of hope. July, said Emily. Father, said he, holding the piece of cheese up before him as he spoke. He was evidently nervous. Would you advise me to marry Meg? His father started and said, Why, what are you thinking of doing? Yes, all things considered. Well, if she suits you. We are cousins. If you want her, I suppose you won't let that hinder you. She'll have a nice bit of money, and if you like her. I like her all right. I shan't go out to Canada with her, though. I shall stay at the Ram, for the sake of the life. It's a poor life, that said the father, ruminating. George laughed. A bit mucky, he said, but it'll do. It would need Cyril or Letty to keep me alive in Canada. It was a bold stroke. Everybody was embarrassed. Well, said the father, I suppose we can't have everything we want. We generally have to put up with the next best thing, don't we, Letty? He laughed. Letty flushed furiously. I don't know, she said. You can generally get what you want if you want it badly enough. Of course, if you don't mind. He rose and went across to Sam. He was playing with the kittens. One was patting and cuffing his bare toe, which had poked through his stocking. He pushed and teased the little scamp with his toe till it rushed at him, clinging, tickling, biting, till he gave little bubbles of laughter, quite forgetful of us. Then the kitten was tired and ran off. 
Letty shook her skirts, and directly the two playful mites rushed upon it, darting round her, rolling head over heels, and swinging from the soft cloth. Suddenly becoming aware that they felt tired, the young things trotted away and cuddled together by the fender, where, in an instant, they were asleep. Almost as suddenly, Sam sank into drowsiness. "'He'd better go to bed,' said the father. "'Put him in my bed,' said George. "'David would wonder what had happened.' "'Will you go to bed, Sam?' asked Emily, holding out her arms to him, and immediately startling him by the terrible gentleness of her persuasion. He retreated behind Letty. "'Come along,' said the latter, and she quickly took him and undressed him. Then she picked him up, and his bare legs hung down in front of her. His head drooped drowsily onto her shoulder against her neck. She put down her face to touch the loose riot of his ruddy hair. She stood so, quiet, still, and wistful, for a few moments. Perhaps she was vaguely aware that the attitude was beautiful for her, and irresistibly appealing to George, who loved, above all in her, her delicate dignity of tenderness. Emily waited with a lighted candle for her some moments. When she came down, there was a softness about her. Now, said I to myself, if George asks her again, he is wise. He is asleep, she said quietly. I'm thinking we might as well let him stop while we're here, should we, George? said his father. Eh? We'll keep him here while we are here. Oh, the lad, I should. Yes, he'd be better here than up yonder. Ah, oh, yes, ever so much. It is good of you, said Letty. Oh, he'll make no difference, said the father. Not a bit, added George. What about his mother? asked Letty. I'll call and tell her in the morning, said George. Yes, she said. Call and tell her. Then she put on her things to go. He also put on his cap. Are you coming a little way, Emily? I asked. She ran, laughing with bright eyes, as we went out into the darkness. We waited for them at the wood-gate. We all lingered, not knowing what to say. Letty said finally, Well, it's no good. The grass is wet. Good night. Good night, Emily. Good night, he said, with regret and hesitation, and a trifle of impatience in his voice and his manner. He lingered still a moment. She hesitated, then she struck off sharply. He's not asked her, the idiot, I said to myself. Really, she said bitterly when we were going up the garden path. You think rather quiet folks have a lot in them, but it's only stupidity. They are mostly fools. End of part two, chapter four.